0: You might recall earlier in 1 Samuel that the principal reason that the Israelites wanted a king to rule over them was because they wanted someone to fight for them. You remember they said that? 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 19-20 through 20 recounts the scene in this way. But the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel. They said, No, but we're determined to have a king over us so that we also may be like the other nations and that our king may govern us and go out before us and... Fight our battles. So when they asked for a king, it would seem that Israel had in mind situations just like the one that we find narrated in 1 Samuel chapter 11. Now, this is a little interesting. Depending on which English translation you're using, chapter 10 of 1 Samuel may or may not conclude with a paragraph which explains a bit of the background which led up to the conflict described in chapter 11. Most of the English translations may not have these verses, but the New Revised Standard Version does. It's actually added to verse 27, and it reads this way. Now Nahash, king of the Ammonites, had been grievously oppressing the Gadites and the Reubenites. Now those are tribes of Israel that live on the eastern side of the Jordan River. He would gouge out the right eye of each of them and would not grant Israel a deliverer. No one was left of the Israelites across the Jordan whose right eye, Nahash, king of the Ammonites, had not gouged out. But there were 7,000 men who had escaped from the Ammonites and had entered Jabesh Gilead. And then that picks up in the story we read together. So for some reason, Nahash was extremely committed to gouging out the right eyes of people. I don't know what the pathology of this guy was. The Jewish historian Josephus has suggested that in the battle practices of the time, the left eye would have been covered up by a shield. So gouging out the right eye would have made the men incapable of fighting in the customary way. So maybe that's why. There's no way to prove that. But perhaps Josephus had access to information that's now lost to us. But even if that's true, the text gives us another reason for why Nahash did this to the people. In Nahash's words, this is what he said, On this condition I'll make a treaty with you, namely that I gouge out everyone's right eye and thus put disgrace on all of Israel. So Nahash's intent was to disgrace the people of Israel. In a way, the gouging out of right eyes for this guy was a way of branding the people that he conquered All who saw that missing eye would know that the people had been conquered and were now under the the dominion of Nahash the Ammonite. And news of this got King Saul angry. Now, this is not going to be the last time King Saul gets angry. He is, in fact, quite a hot-tempered guy. And most of the time, when he's led by his anger, he's proven to be in the wrong. Almost all the time, actually, in the Scriptures. And it might be because of this scene. He might have come to confuse his hot-temperedness with God's Spirit. But there is something unique about this incident of Saul's anger and the others later. 1 Samuel eleven six has told us this, And the Spirit of God came upon Saul in power when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. We won't hear that language again. The anger that King Saul felt on this occasion was a response to the Spirit of the Lord coming upon him. So what the text is telling us is that what Saul experienced on this occasion was not simply his own anger, but God's anger. The word translated into English as his anger was greatly kindled is the Hebrew word charah. Charah. It means to burn, or to kindle, or to cause to burn, or to become red. And it's not the first time, nor will it be the last time it's used of God in the scriptures. This was the word used of God in Exodus chapter 4 verse 14 when Moses refused to be his spokesperson before Pharaoh because he said he wasn't a good public speaker. This was the word used of God in Exodus chapter 32 verse 10 when he threatened to destroy the people of Israel after they worshipped the golden calf on the foothills of Mount Sinai. This was the word used of God in Numbers chapter 11, verse 1, when he executed Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, after they abused their privileges as priests by offering unacceptable sacrifices on the altar of the tabernacle. It was the word used of God in Joshua chapter 7, verse 1, when he allowed the Israelites to be defeated because one of their number had taken treasures from the fall of the city of Jericho and hidden those treasures under his tent. And it was the word the prophet Isaiah used in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 25, to explain in part God's punishment of Israel by allowing the nation to be conquered by their enemies. Now, in almost every instance of the use of this word in reference to God, it's directed against Israel or a member of the people of Israel. So that makes 1 Samuel chapter 11 a bit surprising. Because it's one of the few passages in which a non-Israelite leader does something which angers the Lord in this way. And this week I found myself wondering why. What was it about this behavior of Nahash that raised God's temperature in this way? Now, maybe that seems like a simple question for us to answer. I mean, who wouldn't be angered by this sort of behavior? Isn't God angered by all injustice? And of course, in a way, that's true. I mean, God is always on the side of the oppressed. He always seeks to bring justice. He is a God of justice. But what I'm recognizing is that in the Scriptures, this particular way of describing God's anger is usually reserved for those who are in relationship with God, who betray that relationship in some way. That's usually when it's used. To say it another way, this response of God is usually reserved for those who should have known better, for those who had been warned that their behavior was not correct. And that's what makes this incident with Nahash so uncommon. Nahash was an Ammonite. He's not an Israelite. He had no formal involvement in the covenant God had made with Israel at Mount Sinai. So why would God respond to his behavior as though he did know better, as though he had been warned? Well, the text may be telling us why, and the word is repeated a lot in this text. Nahash was an Ammonite. Well, who were the Ammonites? Well, they were descendants of Ammon. Okay, who was Ammon? Well, Ammon was one of the two sons of Lot. Well, who was Lot? Lot was Abraham's nephew. So the Israelites and the Israelites are the grandchildren of Abraham. So the Israelites and the Ammonites were cousins. Now they're distant cousins at this point, but they're still cousins and there's more. When the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness during the time period between their exodus out of Egypt and their conquest of the land of Canaan, God had given them specific instructions about the Ammonites. God had commanded the Israelites in the following way. This is Deuteronomy chapter 2 verse 19. When you approach the frontier of the Ammonites, do not harass them or engage them in battle. For I will not give the land of the Ammonites to you as a possession, because I have given it to the descendants of Lot. So the Ammonites were still present in the land of Canaan in the days of Saul, because God had prohibited the Israelites from displacing them in this verse in deuteronomy god had indicated to israel that he had formed a covenant with the ammonites now we have no access to that covenant it's not been preserved but god tells the israelites he made one nonetheless god had given their territory to them and he had therefore prohibited israel from conquering them so when nahash invaded israelite territory and did what he did to the israelites it was more than a routine war of expansion that was so common in the ancient Near East at the time. God had been loyal and faithful to the Ammonites by prohibiting Israel from taking any of their land during the conquest. But now, Nahash had repaid God's faithfulness by attempting to seize the land of the Israelites, by enslaving the people, and by branding and shaming them by removing one of their eyes. And this is what raised God's temperature. I suppose we could spend time today considering Saul's battle with the Ammonites and the stratagems he used to defeat them. I'd find that interesting myself. We could also spend time considering Saul's graciousness in not executing those who had opposed him now that he had become popular among the people in the wake of his military victory. That act of mercy certainly tells us a great deal about Saul at the beginning of his time as king. It would also be worth exploring the ways in which Saul and Samuel led the people to give thanks to God for the victory over Ammon and did not take the glory for themselves. All of that would be worthy of deeper study. But today I want to continue asking a question that has guided our study of the scriptures for nearly the last year together. What does this tell us about God? First, it tells us that God does get angry Now, God's anger is not human anger, of course. To speak of God as getting angry is in some ways metaphorical language. Yet the scriptures do describe God's behavior in these incidences as motivated by something analogous to human rage. What this means is that God is not indifferent or dispassionate when it comes to human wrongs. To say that God gets angry is another way of saying that God cares that he is invested in the world and invested in our lives. God allows the things we do and the things we say to have an effect on him. He's not disinterested. He's not unconcerned. God reacts to human behavior and decisions. When God reacts against those who've broken their words or their covenants or their agreements, the Bible describes that as God's anger or more literally as God getting hot. So first, this episode in the life of Israel tells us that God is not indifferent to human betrayals. In the language of the First Testament, God gets angry when we break our agreements. Furthermore, God's anger is purposeful. He has a reason for it. He has an intention for it. When God responds in anger, he acts to restore what has been broken. In the case of Israel, and this is what we heard in the kids' lesson with King Zedekiah, God acted to enforce the stipulations of the covenant that he had made with them. If they didn't want to keep the covenant, he was going to make sure they kept it. In the case of Nahash, God decimated his army and sent the survivors scrambling back into the boundary of the territory God had given to them from the beginning. He sent them back to the land of their covenant. God cares about what we do, and he cares particularly about the things we do that we should know not to do or that we have already said we would not do. Even more, God will act to reestablish the promises we have broken. He will hold us to them. Even if we have no intention of keeping those promises, he will hold us to them. Finally, God is especially concerned about the behavior of those who are in relationship with him. He is especially concerned about the behavior of those who are in relationship with him. The Apostle Paul wrote the following in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9-13. through Paul said, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral persons, not at all meaning the immoral of this world or the greedy and robbers or idolaters, since you would then need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother or sister, who is sexually immoral or greedy or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard or robber. Do not even eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging those outside? Is it not those who are inside that you are to judge? God will judge those outside. Drive out the wicked person from among you. Not our favorite verse in the New Testament. But it is New Testament, not Old. And this advice of Paul is consistent with what we have observed of God in 1 Samuel 11. It's not that God is indifferent, of course, to people who are not interested in him. As Paul's confessed, God will judge those outside. And the Bible's full of examples of God bringing judgment on non-Israelite and non-Christian people, what the Bible calls Gentiles. Even more, the scriptures insist that in the wake of Jesus' second coming, all who have ever lived will be resurrected to stand before the judgment seat of Jesus and be evaluated for all they've done in the flesh. So we're not learning that God cares only about what his own people do. We're not learning that. But what we have observed is that God cares more about what his own people do. And the way the Bible expresses that deeper concern is by describing God's response to his own people in terms of deeply negative emotion. When God destroyed the whole earth in the flood, in Genesis 6, the whole earth, the scriptures do not say he got angry. On that occasion, we're told that God was sorry that he had created humanity and that he was grieved in his heart, but it never says he got angry. Their destruction is described simply as a result of what had to happen. When God destroyed the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, the scriptures, again, do not say that he got angry. Their destruction is simply described as a dispassionate act of justice. Again, it just is what had to happen. But it never tells us that God was angry with them. But when God destroyed his own people, that's when we're told that he was angry. And when God sent Saul to bring judgment on Nahash of Ammon, again we are told God was angry. It's because they were in relationship with him and betrayed that relationship that he got angry. It's for this reason that God has asked us through the Apostle Paul as a community to hold those who claim to follow Jesus to higher standards than those who have not made any such promises. Those who claim to follow Jesus have made the commitment to submit to the teachings to which Jesus submitted. That's the First Testament. To submit to all that Jesus has taught us directly. That's been recorded in the Gospels. And to submit to all that his chosen apostles have explained about his teachings. And that's the rest of the New Testament. Those of us who follow Jesus, whether we realize it or not, have made these commitments and the scriptures insist that God will hold us to them. Now, did Nahash know about the agreement God had made with the Ammonites centuries earlier? It was centuries before. I don't know. The text doesn't say. If his knowledge were important, then I would guess that the text would have commented on it. In Nahash's case, ignorance was immaterial. God had made a lasting covenant with the Ammonites with respect to the boundaries of their land. Whether the Ammonites had preserved that knowledge or not, whether Nahash was aware of that agreement or not, God was going to hold them to it anyway. This is in part why it is so important for us to raise our children in the fear of the Lord, because ignorance of the commitments of our forebears has never been a defense in the Scriptures. Israel often neglected the teachings of God. In certain seasons, we're even told that the covenant of Sinai itself had been misplaced and not read for decades. But none of that ignorance protected Israel. Once a people has entered into relationship with God, God places expectations not only on them, but also on their descendants. And for those who have ears to hear, this in part helps to explain why we are where we are in our country today. We are under judgment. The place is falling apart. Many of us recognize that when European settlers first came and began to colonize this land, they confessed to doing so for the glory of God. Some of you have read the Mayflower Compact that the pilgrims wrote when they landed here. This is an excerpt from it. They wrote, having undertaken for the glory of God and advancement of the Christian faith and honor of our king and country, a voyage to plant the first colony in the northern parts of Virginia. They missed Virginia, as you know. Do by these presents, solemnly and mutually, in the presence of God and of one another, covenant and combine ourselves together in a civil body politic for our better ordering and preservation and furtherance of the ends aforesaid, and by virtue hereof to enact, constitute, and frame such just and equal laws, ordinances, acts, constitutions, and offices from time to time as shall be thought most meet and convenient for the general good of the colony, unto which we promise all due submission and obedience. In witness whereof we have here under subscribed our names at Cape Cod the 11th of November in the year of the reign of our sovereign Lord King James of England, France and Ireland, the 18th, and of Scotland the 54th, Anno Domini, 1620. For the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith. And yet... We have a history of duplicitous and malevolent dealings with the native inhabitants of this land, the abominable practice of chattel slavery, and continued compromises of the teachings of God through Scripture which have continued throughout our history right up until the current moment. Today, in fact, many would call our country proudly pluralistic, that is, a culture of many faiths and of many systems of belief. Now, if ours had always been a pagan nation, which had never confessed a commitment to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who became flesh in the person of Jesus, things would have been bad enough. But the fact that our forebears did make such a covenant with God makes matters worse. Now, of course, the Mayflower Compact does not speak for all of the original colonies, but each in their own way made similar claims to Christian faith and similar promises to Christian fidelity. Our ancestors, though not of precisely the same doctrinal persuasions, all made similar statements of faith when they founded the nation. Now we're in a slightly better position than Israel was because Israel's covenant was initiated by God, not by them. God came to Israel and offered them a covenant. So the covenant between Israel and God was mutual. The founders of our country may have made covenants with God, but God did not make any covenant with them. The only covenant God has made with humanity since the coming of Jesus is the coming of Jesus, the covenant of Jesus. That's not a covenant of land, and it's not a covenant of earthly territory. The covenant of Jesus is a covenant of relationship, which includes the promise of citizenship in the kingdom of God, and that's a kingdom that is not of this world. So thankfully, whatever promises the founders of our country might have made, God made no promises in return, and yet they still made promises. When the descendants of those who promised to follow God turn away, God does not exempt them from the promises of their ancestors. This has been graphically illustrated to us in the person of Nahash and in the nation of Ammon in 1 Samuel chapter 11. And in case we were dubious about how consistent God might be in this respect, the judgment we're facing now in Europe and America looks more like the way God treats those who have departed from him than it looks like the way God treats those who never knew him. Now, as the Apostle Paul's warned us, I'm not particularly worried about the world. And as should be obvious to all of us, the world has increasingly populated this country over time. There are very few remaining who can trace their lineage either physically or spiritually back to those first colonizers. And we also know that in the covenant of Jesus, it's the spiritual that matters so much more than the physical. But the spiritual descendants of those folks Who founded this place are to be found in the Christian churches. So, my final exhortation is for those in our culture who call themselves Christians or descend from families who have called themselves Christian in the past. If Nahash had remembered the boundaries of the land God had given to his people and he had repented by returning to those boundaries, things would have gone better for him and his people, but he refused. Perhaps each of us, too, should remember the promises that both we and our ancestors have made to God and seek God for what manner of repentance he would ask of us. I hope we will do that. I hope we will pray. May God add his blessing to the exploration of his word today. Amen.